from the heart of our nation's capital, here's Family Research Council President Tony Perkins. Well, thanks for tuning in. It's always great to have you joining us here at Washington Watch. Well, coming up on this Tuesday edition, Russian President Vladimir Putin announced today in his State of the Nation address that Russia was suspending participation in the 2011 START nuclear arms treaty. The announcement by uh, Russia that it's uh, suspending participation in New START is deeply unfortunate and irresponsible. Uh, we'll be watching carefully to see what uh, Russia actually does. We'll, of course, make sure that in any event we are postured appropriately for the security of our own country and, and, and that of our allies. That was Secretary of State Anthony Blinken earlier today in Greece. Is this a significant development? Are we moving closer to a direct confrontation with Russia? We'll discuss those questions and more with retired Lieutenant General Jerry Boykin, former Deputy Undersecretary of Defense for Intelligence, a little later here on Washington Watch. And we have the tools to save lives and end COVID-19 as a global health emergency this year. We must continue to use them all and use them well. That was the Director General Tedros Ghebreyesus of the World Health Organization, who, and he was making those comments last week, using COVID as justification, who is poised to grab global power next week? And Republican members of Congress are responding. We'll talk with North Carolina Congressman Dan Bishop in just a moment. The Supreme Court heard oral arguments today in one of several high-profile cases that they will take up this term. The cases range from President Biden's student loan bailout to big tech's protection under Section 230. I guess the question is, how do you get yourself from a neutral algorithm to an aiding and abetting right. an intent, knowledge? There has to be some intent to aid and abet. You have to have knowledge that you're doing this. With Justice Sonia Sotomayor earlier today in a case involving Google and their liability under Section 230. Ken Kulkowski joins me later to discuss this case and the other cases that will be before the court this term. And here's one that will make you chuckle. After seven years of trying to punish red states, that uh, those states that protect babies and believe that men are men and women are women and that, that the two should not be forced to use the same bathrooms or play on the same sports teams... The city of San Francisco is poised to reverse their boycott policy known as 12X. Why? Well, stick around. We're going to talk about it with Matt Carpenter, director of FRC Action, a little later here on Washington Watch. The website, TonyPerkins.com, lots of resources there for you. Be sure and uh, check it out and share it with your friends. If you're on Facebook, you can find me. I'm Tony Perkins right there on Facebook and Twitter. It's at T Perkins. Our word for today comes from Joel chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. Put on sackcloth and lament, O priest. Wail, O ministers of the altar. Go in, pass the night in sackcloth, O ministers of my God. Because grain offering and drink offering are withheld from the house of your God. Consecrate a fast, call a solemn assembly. Gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land to the house of the Lord your God and cry out to the Lord. The nation was in a mess. They were facing pestilence and famine, which the prophet Joel said was just a warning of their coming judgment if they did not repent. Now, notice who Joel says should be leading the people back to God. It's the spiritual leaders. Pastors, don't wait for your church members. Don't wait for the mayor. Don't wait for the legislature. And don't wait for the president. Pastors, you step out and lead. For more on our journey through the Bible, go to frc.org slash Bible. A day after his surprise visit to Kiev, President Biden delivered a speech in Poland today accusing Russia of crimes against humanity and reaffirming, reaffirming the United States' commitment to Ukraine. The president's speech came hours after Russian President Vladimir Putin announced that Russia would suspend its participation in the new Strategic Arms Reduction Treaty, or New START, where might this be leading? Well, joining me now to discuss this and more is Congressman Dan Bishop. He is a member of the House Homeland Security Committee, the House Judiciary Committee, and the Subcommittee on the Weaponization of the Federal Government. He represents North Carolina's 8th Congressional District. Congressman Bishop, welcome back to the program. Thank you, Tony. Glad to be with you today. Well, let me just start with this. Your reaction to the president's comments today and Russian President Vladimir Putin's announcement. 
Well, look, I, I think uh, we are moving, as we have been for some time in Ukraine, to a very dangerous position. Uh, I, I think that uh, the, the notion that I, mean, I can remember from college when they taught us about the danger of encircling Russia, the Soviet Union, why that was a bad policy. It seems to me that there is sort of a headlong rush to do that, a lack of consideration for uh, what the ultimate consequences may be. And uh, I, I believe that uh, uh, Putin's responses are predictable. And I think the answer that President Biden hasn't given us is what is the objective uh, that is consistent with American interests? How do we ensure uh, that we don't end up triggering uh, World War III in the, in the process? And I just think that the answer hasn't yet been forthcoming. Uh, I hope that I, I think in, in this Congress, as Kevin McCarthy has said, when there's no, no more blank checks, we're into Ukraine for over $100 billion. And uh, we're, we're going to have to see some accountability and some answers, some off ramps, some exit strategies that make sense for the national security of the United States. So, Congressman, do you think that the president's trip to, <clears throat> to Kiev, his statements there in Poland today, are, is this administration provoking Biden, uh, provoking uh, uh, Putin, rather? Well, I mean, if, if, the, if you were, can you think of a way that, that you would do anything that would have a, a greater effect to that, uh, to that extent? I, I just, it, it seems uh, uh, unwise in the extreme to me. It does seem that you constantly have pushed Putin to the limits. In fact, some have said, what if, what if Putin were replaced? What if, you know, that Russia suffered such an extraordinary de defeat and embarrassment in Ukraine uh, you know, the utter defeat there, and uh, and Putin were were uh, taken out of power. Would that be better for the United States? I mean, don't get me wrong, Tony. He's not a great guy. He's not. He's a bad. He's been very, uh, very bad, very brutal. But who comes after him? The United States needs to be concerned about that. Are we better off with Libya, with uh, Gaddafi being killed, yeah. and that country having been a chaos ever since? If you consider that on a continental scale, like uh, like Russia. So well, I think we, the, the positions have been fairly reckless there. Yeah, especially since our military policy, since the Korean War has moved to containment as opposed to outright victory in so many of these places. I, I, I want to switch topics, um, Congressman, to the WHO, the World Health Organization. They're going to be meeting next week. And there is uh, what they call a, uh, a global accord. Uh, it's, it's really, it looks like a treaty. It, it certainly has the effect of a treaty. And it, uh, it, it's been negotiated, it's been worked out, it's going to be presented to the 192 uh, member nations. This, as I read it, this allows the World Health Organization to declare a global pandemic and then take over how member nations respond to this. This looks like a threat to national sovereignty. You know, Tony, about a year ago, about last May, uh, June, somewhere, somewhere in that time frame, there were uh, suggestions about amending the international health regulations, I believe they call them, a, a, a group of uh, internal regulatory provisions governing the World Health Organizations. This seems like a continuation of the effort that was involved there, except as if it, it, that it is in more extreme. Um, a lot of folks have, I've had uh, people contact me already about this. I've joined Chip Roy's bill for the United States to uh, exit the World Health Organization. I don't think we ought to be a member. I certainly don't believe any pr the president of the United States or his administration ought to be suggesting ceding any of American sovereign authority to the World Health Organization. And that is, there's a lot of language in this document, if it had the force of a treaty, that seems to be in, uh, headed in, in that direction. One assurance that I would offer people my understanding, my view of it, and understanding of legal view is it would have no effect without ratification by two-thirds of the United States Senate, which I don't anticipate. Um, I do know, however, that President Biden has, in multiple occasions, exercised or purported to exercise authority that he lacked, and I wouldn't be surprised if he'd use something like that to do that, this to do that again. I think about the vaccine mandates the United States Supreme Court said he didn't have the power to do. So, this is beyond his authority, but, uh, but it is a great shame, I think, upon the uh, office of the presidency that so often he has uh, attempted by executive uh, order to exercise 
authority that is not his under the Constitution? Well, according to the, the document, it, it would allow for provisional implementation so that it will go into effect, everyone will act like it's effect, even if it is not uh, ratified by the various uh, countries. So it's almost as if you have to um, opt out of it as opposed to opting into it. They, they've become very crafty in the way that they construct these uh, agreements. It's very true, and there is such a thing, Tony, as an executive agreement. Presidents can enter into agreements with foreign nations on proper subjects, and within a certain scope of, of uh, subject matter um, that, that, take a, that will be effective during their administration. So, in theory, uh, maybe the Biden administration could concede that this agreement that, uh, you know, have some authority, even if the United States Senate hasn't ratified it as a treaty, uh, I think there are many other reasons, including the same reasons that President Biden couldn't declare a vaccine mandate across the country that would preclude him from entering into an executive agreement on this sort of subject matter, purporting to bind the United States, purporting to bind state governments, which is where that authority reposes. Right. So don't think he can do it, but uh, as, as we sort of our comments have indicated, this is a phenomenon we're seeing over and over yeah. again. The, uh, the exertion of uh, authority by a president who lacks it. Where you have a divided Congress, the Republicans having the House, the Democrats control of the Senate, I think this would fall to the states to fight it as they have fought uh, much of this administration's overreach, would it not? Yeah, I, I think what you'd have to see, Tony, and this is not very comforting, frankly, but you'd probably see if this thing were done, if actions were taken in the name of it, purporting to bind folks, you'd see attorneys general of states across the country step up and, and bring litigation, and then you rely on the courts for, uh, for the protection. Thank goodness for the United States Supreme Court, but if that had a change of personnel, we'd be in real trouble. You know, final question before you go back. I, I guess I should have asked this to begin with. When we're thinking about giving the World Health Organization all this power and authority to basically be the medical police in a self-declared pandemic, how did uh, WHO do with the COVID pandemic? <laughs> well, yeah, they did horribly. They did horribly, and the United States public health sector did horribly as well. And uh, both of those, it, it would be amazing to me. You would imagine after the uh, experiences that we've had, those folks would be licking their wounds and trying to figure out what went wrong rather than grabbing for still more power to cause more debacles in the event we have a problem uh, like COVID in the, in the future. They, yeah. But they never seem to learn. They only know how to double down in grabbing for power. More power. That's what it's all about. In favor of the medical police, would be more like the Keystone Cops. Congressman Dan Bishop, always great to see you. Thanks so much for joining us today. Good to see you, Tony. All right. We're going to continue to follow this as this meeting will be taking place uh, next week. This is, look, they do a lot of this stuff thinking people won't watch. And we talked about this a little bit yesterday with uh, former Congresswoman Michelle Bachman, how through international efforts, they try to work their way in the back door into the United States, imposing a lot of this crazy stuff on us. And this is what they're doing with WHO. So we're going to continue to, uh, to unpack this. All right, coming up next, uh, we're going to continue our conversation about Russia, the United States. Uh, General Jerry Boykin joins me as we talk about what it means for Russia to withdraw from this treaty. Don't go away. Would you like to spend consistent time in God's Word? Then join Family Research Council on an exciting journey through the Bible. FRC's two-year Bible reading plan helps you to approach daily Bible reading intentionally. You will dive deeper into the nature of God and how his word speaks into cultural issues of today. All wisdom comes from God, and he has given us the Bible as a way to understand the world. His word is necessary in our lives, so much so that Christ said, we are to live on every word that comes from the mouth of God. He calls it our daily bread because we need it daily to sustain us and nourish us spiritually, just like food does physically. Start this adventure today with Family Research Council. When you sign up, we'll text you with daily passages and questions that help prepare you for conversations with your friends and family. To begin this journey, visit frc.org slash Bible.
First Peter 3.15 instructs us to always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks for a reason for the hope that we have. The mission of FRC's online center for biblical worldview is to carry out that verse by training Christians to advance and defend the faith in their families, communities, and the public square, as now more than ever, we need to be grounded in the truth of God's word. The Center for Biblical Worldview provides amazing written resources for a wide range of relevant issues, including biblical stances on voting, religious liberty, abortion, marriage, and sexuality. Each of these topics comes as a free downloadable PDF version, abbreviated version, and Spanish translation, along with a prayer guide. To access this written series or to sign up for the Center for Biblical Worldview's monthly newsletter, visit frc.org slash worldview. Did you know that from as early as 12 weeks, and certainly by 20 weeks, an unborn child can feel pain? Did you know the issue of pornography is growing among women? Did you know that pornography, sex trafficking, and abortion are all linked and on the rise across the globe? Issues such as pornography, human trafficking, drug legalization, and abortion are all violations of human dignity and have resulted in the devaluation of human life in our culture. Family Research Council stands firm on the principle that every life has value, ought to be respected, and has been designed for a unique purpose— Educate yourself on the harms of pornography, human trafficking, and abortion so that you can offer hope and help. Learn more at frc.org forward slash life. Welcome back to Washington Watch. I'm your host, Tony Perkins. Good to have you with us on this Tuesday. As I mentioned in the last segment, Russian President Vladimir Putin announced today that his country is pulling back from its new START treaty with the United States. This treaty, originally signed in uh, 2010, limits the nuclear arsenal for both the United States and Russia. Now, combined, the two superpowers possess more than 90% of the world's nuclear weapons. So what will this mean in practice? Where is this leading us? Joining me now to discuss this and more is FRC's Executive Vice President, retired Lieutenant General Jerry Boykin, who spent the last four years of his 36-year military career serving as the Deputy Undersecretary of Defense for Intelligence at the Pentagon. He was also one of the original members of the U.S. Army's Delta Force. General, welcome back to the, uh, to the program. Thank you, Tony. It's always good to be with you. Let me first get your reaction to uh, President Biden's visit to uh, Ukraine. You know, I am one who believes that that was a good move on his part. I I think it's uh, it's long overdue, but I think that he did a good thing by going there uh, and publicly uh, speaking with uh, President Zelensky. And uh, I I think that the only downside of this thing is that uh, he just waited too long. Is this provoking Vladimir Putin with his announcement today that uh, would have Russia step back from the New START treaty? Well, you need to understand that uh, this is serious. I mean, we need to take it seriously because it is one of the treaties. But it's also a treaty that uh, Putin hasn't been abiding by for a number of years. Uh, One of the uh, stipulations in that treaty when it was... uh, ratified was that uh, the Western nations would be able to go and inspect the uh, Russian uh, facilities and uh, stockpiles and that uh, Russia would be able to do the same. They have not let uh, U.S. forces or any NATO forces in there to do this for a number of years. So they haven't been abiding by this. So uh, it's no surprise to me that he did this. And I think it you know, Secretary Blinken actually had a very good thought today. Uh, and as he said, this uh, shows that uh, Vladimir Putin is not preparing for peace. He is preparing for an extended war. What do these treaties mean? I mean, if you just pull back from it, I mean, what what is what are the ramifications or the consequences for saying, hey, uh, we're not going to abide by it. We're just walking away from it. Are there any? Well, no, there really aren't any, other than if the uh, nations that are on the side that uh, that we're on, let's say, for example, uh, 
they still have the option of imposing sanctions uh, and doing other things that uh, are non-kinetic, so to speak. But uh, generally speaking, these nations are supposed to enforce these uh, these treaties. It's like the uh, JCPOA with the Iranians. Uh, they have been cheating on that ever since it started. And, and God bless Donald Trump when he pulled out of it, uh, realizing that uh, we were the only ones that were really uh, prepared to live up to it on our side, at least. So uh, I don't uh, I don't think that uh, there's any enforcement to this that uh, we could put so, our finger on right now. So just to be sure that I'm clear, you're saying this really doesn't change much because they weren't abiding by it before. And so it just says that, hey, this is another signal that they're in this for the long haul to, uh, to engage in uh, military behavior there in Europe. Yeah, and keep in mind, when the war started, when Putin crossed the uh, the line of departure and went into Ukraine, remember he had been in Belarus practicing a nuclear scenario, a training scenario, nuclear training scenario. And every time he's been jammed, he has come out with the threat of using a nuclear weapon. And I think that this, this act is one more uh, propaganda thing for him to uh, try and, and have the, the West particularly our administration, uh, buckle to them and and, uh, and do what they want us to do, which is stop supplying the Ukrainians with weapons and uh, material. How significant do you think the threat of nu- nuclear conflict with the United States and Russia is? At this point, I don't think it's very high. I really don't think it's very high. Uh, that could change. It depends on what happens, uh, I think, in the internal politics of Russia and, and how much they squeeze Putin. You know, Putin, any way you look at it, I think Putin is done when this is all over with. I think he's done. And the Russian people are already rising up. They have been for months. And uh, I, I think that if, uh, if he gets enough pressure on him that he just really doesn't, uh, is not thinking straight, and if it's true that he is sick, that he has some kind of debilitating uh, long-term uh, illness, then uh, I think it's possible that he could use a nuclear weapon uh, on one of our allies, which would immediately uh, trigger an Article 5 response. And and uh, there are three nuclear countries sitting on his border right now. That's the U.S., France, and Britain. And, uh, and, and it would be a game changer, and nobody wins. Nobody wins. Let me switch gears just a little bit. Something else you you uh, know quite a bit about. The president, vice president as well, earlier last week, saying that Russia has engaged in crimes against humanity. Uh, where do you think that might lead? Does that make Russia more, and Putin in particular, desperate, uh, knowing that he'll have to face the music? Well, yeah, but see... How does who enforces that? Who makes sure that Putin stands before a tribunal to account for his war crimes? I mean, that's what they are. They're war crimes. And and they are covered by previous treaties. Uh, and I don't think that uh, Putin, until uh, he has actually left office, I don't think that Putin is going to be held accountable on this. There'll be a lot of rhetoric about it. There'll be a lot of investigations. There already are. But I don't think that anybody will be able to get to him until he is out of power. And uh, and I do believe that this is the end of Putin when this, this whole war is over with or when the people finally reach a point where they're going to overthrow him. Will the United States have the wherewithal and the determination to follow through on these war crimes? Well, yeah. You know, I ran a war crime uh, task force back in the Balkans after the Balkans war. And yeah, we rounded up a lot of uh, a lot of people. We had uh, we had an international force there. I had five nations that were going after these people, but uh, we we did the U.S. led that effort, and we put the majority of the troops on the ground to do it. And we went in and captured, uh, and some surrendered, but we captured and got, and took surrenders from uh, people that were guilty of war crimes, mm-hmm. and we sent them to the Hague. So it yes, the U.S. has a history of doing. It. All right, General Jerry Boykin, always great to see you. Thanks so much for joining us today. All right, folks, stick with us. Coming up next, eating crow in California. That's on the menu in San Francisco. We're going to talk about it next. Don't go away.
Are you a university student? Do you know a university student, specifically one who wants to grow as a Christian leader to positively influence public policy and the culture? Look no further. Family Research Council has a life-changing 12 to 15 week internship program that has prepared and equipped students to take the next step in their professional journey. With a speaker series focusing on careers and callings, lectures from prominent conservative leaders, and weekly biblical worldview training, students will grow in personal and professional development. Interns have the opportunity to work in policy, communications, event planning, and more. They will gain real-world experience working directly with our experts who will guide them in pursuing careers of influence so that they can make a difference wherever God calls. This paid internship offers fully funded housing in the heart of downtown D.C., giving you the chance to experience our nation's capital. Visit frc.org internships to apply. What is biblical masculinity? In our culture of gender confusion, there aren't many examples of godly manhood. Men, husbands, and fathers need to find a model of godly manhood, leadership, and strength. But where can they find it in our culture? Stand Courageous Men's Ministry was created to help men find this model of godly manhood and to develop a strong biblical character, cultivate positive habits, build and rebuild relationships, and make commitments that will move men closer to God's good purpose and design. Men who will stand courageous. Join us at a Stand Courageous Men's Conference to discuss critical aspects of masculinity. These conferences are led by men who understand the issues men face. They unpack our role as a defender, provider, instructor, and battle buddy so that we can make an influence as a chaplain inside and outside the home. Learn more and find a Stand Courageous event near you at StandCourageous.com. Washington Watch. I'm Tony Perkins, your host. Good to have you with us on this Tuesday. Be sure and check out the website, TonyPerkins.com. Lots of resources there for you as you are engaged in the government of our country. All right. When the city of San Francisco passed an ordinance to boycott doing business with Red State seven years ago, they thought the ban would have an economic impact. Well, it did, just not the impact they expected. City officials are quietly looking to walk back this uh, petty decision after a recent study confirmed the boycott policy has damaged their bottom line while having almost zero, zero economic impact on their targets. And, uh, you know, they've got like 30 states on their blacklist, red states, that believe that human life is precious and should be protected that there's a difference between men and women. So here's the question. Does this show once again that the left's woke policies are simply not sustainable, that they are bad for business? Well, join me now to discuss this and more is Matt Carpenter, director of FRC Action. Matt, welcome to Washington Watch. Thanks for having me, Tony. Great to be with you. All right, so it's been seven years since San Francisco adopted this policy known as 12X. Tell our viewers and listeners about it. So basically, several months after the Obergefell decision, the city of San Francisco set out to pressure, essentially, conservative states. Um, And what they ended up doing was they ended up uh, granting authority to the city administrator to create a list of states that have declined to take up special protections for individuals on the basis of their self-identified sexual orientation, gender identity. And I think later on, they ended up expanding it to abortion rights and and what they determined as voting rights. Uh, And then they attached provisions in this uh, ordinance to prohibit the city from um, funding travel from state city employees rather to those states on the list. And then also prohibited the city from doing business with uh, companies headquartered in those states. So it, it was not only, you know, restricting the travel, but what really got to them apparently was restricting the contracting of businesses in these red states. It ended up, according to this study, uh, adding about 10 to 20 percent surcharge to much of the cost of doing business in San Francisco. So they're they're the ones that are having to pay more because of their uh, intolerance toward those who want to protect the unborn and who refuse to go with the woke policies of the left. That's exactly right, Tony. I mean, the, the policy set out to pressure red states. And, and not only that, they actually tried to encourage other cities to take up similar ordinances. And you can kind of imagine what would have happened if 
if, if uh, cities, if large cities across the whole country did this at the same time, there might have been an effect. But essentially, San Francisco was left hung out to dry by uh, by other large metropolitan areas. Um, and in the report, they actually point out that not one single state changed their law because of their policy. They couldn't find a single instance in which this policy, the intent of this ordinance worked. But they did outline a significant uh, premium they had to pay to do business. And that's what happens when you cancel 60 percent of the states in the union. Yeah. Um and they could have asked us. We could have saved them a lot of trouble because, you know, we've been tracking this for quite some time. These policies and the, you know, the 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 chest beating of the uh, of the left, for instance. Uh, actually, earlier in the program, I had Dan Bishop on. If, if I'm not mistaken, I think he was the author of the HB two in uh, in North Carolina, what was dubbed the bathroom bill back when he was in the legislature there. And you had all of these woke corporations saying, "We're not going to do business with North Carolina. We're gonna we're gonna tank their economy." And guess what happened? Their economy kept going up and up and up. And uh, in fact, I think it was Forbes listed them for like three consecutive years as uh, one of the best states to do business in and one of the strongest economies. Mm-hmm. Well, Tony, one of the great ironies of this whole thing, and you point out this, the situation in North Carolina, I mean, a, a huge percentage of the silicon that, that a lot of these big tech companies use is, is produced right out of North Carolina. And that happened to be a state that, that, uh, that San Francisco, which is home to so many of these large tech companies, wouldn't allow their city employees to travel to. They wouldn't allow, because of this ordinance, to contract with companies that had headquarters in North Carolina. So, I mean, just right there in that one simple instance, I mean, you point out that the conservative states felt no, no essential economic burden from, um, from, from moving forward with a conservative agenda. But they're stepping on their toes the whole way, trying to implement their woke agenda. So what a, what a contrast, really, that, that shows. Well, in the meantime, Matt, how many folks have left uh, the, uh, the state of California looking for redder pastures? This has been the news for a couple of years now, Tony. I think some estimates I've seen show more than half a million Californians have opted for uh, red states, whether that's because of uh, more conservative policies or more favorable tax climate for their small businesses or for their estates. You know, who knows? But um, what's interesting is if you dig down a little further, I've even seen estimates that the Bay Area, where San Francisco is located, has accounted for almost 100,000 or even even more than that, I think it's about 115,000 of those um, 500,000 migrating out of California have come just out of that Bay Area alone. So you can see people voting with their feet as well. And and if I'm not mistaken, California lost a congressional seat in this uh, last uh, census, did they not? If it wasn't one, it was two. But yes, I believe they did lose a, a seat and they might have been on the cusp of losing another one. It was pretty close. Look, this, I mean, people... I mean, it just, it's not going to work out for them. And this is what I think eventually we're going to see this, these policies of the left and these liberals that gain control of these governments, it's just unsustainable. And people are going to vote with their feet. Yeah. I mean, Tony, I would also mention that San Francisco, we have to remember, is the place where just last year they ditched their woke district attorney. Right. And they just recalled three uh, school board members. And so they're not electing super conservatives. Uh, in San Francisco, obviously, but there is a limit there that people will accept, and and maybe we are at at or near peak wokeness. Yeah, I think they've reached the bottom. Well, maybe not yet, but maybe soon. Matt, great to see you. Thanks for joining us. Thanks, Tony. Folks, stick with us. We're going to talk Supreme Court next with Ken Klukowski. Don't go away. What is biblical masculinity? In our culture of gender confusion, there aren't many examples of godly manhood. Men, husbands, and fathers need to find a model of godly manhood, leadership, and strength. But where can they find it in our culture? Stand Courageous Men's Ministry was created to help men find this model of godly manhood and to develop a strong biblical character, cultivate positive habits, build and rebuild relationships, and make commitments that will move men closer to God's good purpose and design. Men who will stand courageous. Join us at a Stand Courageous Men's Conference to discuss critical aspects of masculinity. These conferences are led by men who understand the issues men face. They unpack our role as a defender, provider, instructor, and battle buddy so that we can make an influence as a chaplain inside and outside the home. Learn more and find a Stand Courageous event near you at StandCourageous.com.
With the increase in tech censorship of conservatives and Christians, Family Research Council created a tech subscription platform to be sure we don't go completely dark due to censorship. It is important to us that we stay connected with you and that you stay informed. So if we get canceled, you can still access updates on faith, family, and freedom. How? Just text STAND to 67742 to sign up for our text alerts, and you will get FRC's content straight to your phone. Again, just text STAND to 67742, and you will get alerts on the biggest stories of the day. With just a simple text, always have access to our content and stay informed and connected with like-minded community. Text STAND to 67742. That's STAND to 67742. Are you a university student? Do you know a university student, specifically one who wants to grow as a Christian leader to positively influence public policy and the culture? Look no further. Family Research Council has a life-changing 12 to 15 week internship program that has prepared and equipped students to take the next step in their professional journey. With a speaker series focusing on careers and callings, lectures from prominent conservative leaders, and weekly biblical worldview training, students will grow in personal and professional development. Interns have the opportunity to work in policy, communications, event planning, and more. They will gain real-world experience working directly with our experts who will guide them in pursuing careers of influence so that they can make a difference wherever God calls. This paid internship offers fully funded housing in the heart of downtown D.C., giving you the chance to experience our nation's capital. Visit frc.org internships to apply. Welcome back to Washington Watch. I'm your host, Tony Perkins. All right, I, I mentioned this uh, briefly yesterday, and I'm going to keep it before you. If you've not yet signed the petition on behalf of uh, former police officer Jacob Kersey. Now, he is a 19-year-old police officer in Port Wentworth, Georgia, that was uh, essentially bullied into resigning for f- posting a statement about biblical marriage on his Facebook page. Now, he was told he could come back after a week's suspension if he promised never to make comments on Scripture again. Um, you know, we have a First Amendment right, but we've dug into this uh, this city in Port Wentworth uh, in Georgia, and, man, it, it, it sounds a little sketchy. And so we've got a petition that we're going to send to Mayor Norton. You might live in that area. You might want to call him, but uh, you certainly can send a petition. We're going to be delivering them on March the 10th. Um, Jody Heiss, Congressman Jody Heiss, who is from Georgia and uh, the host here on Fridays, he's going to be going with me. We're going to be dropping these off with the mayor there in Port Wentworth. And you can add your name to it. And standing with Jacob. Just text the name Jacob to 67742. That's Jacob to 67742, and it'll take you a link over to FRC Action. You can sign the petition, and uh, we're going to deliver those, as I said, uh, Lord willing, on March the 10th, to make it very clear that we stand in defense of the First Amendment. And when someone like this, a young guy, you know, we hear all this stuff about young people being, you know, going astray. And here's a young man, 19 years old, and I've talked to him many times. I've, I've had him on the program. You've heard him on the program. Very mature young man who loves the Lord. And we need to be standing with young people like that. I mean, I, 19 years old, he is a lot more mature than I know some folks two or three times his age. In fact, he has more courage. Because by the way, and I've I connected this before in the program, the reason I think the, the, the administration there in Port Wentworth felt emboldened in part was because of the so-called Respect for Marriage Act that passed through Congress during the lame duck session of Congress, which 12 Republicans, many of them two, three times his age, were cowards and, and, and caved to the pressure and supported. Anyway, I don't want to get started on that, but Text the name Jacob to 67742 and, um, and add your voice uh, to the defense of the First Amendment. 
The Supreme Court heard oral arguments today and will again tomorrow on two cases that could restructure everything we know for both online speech and content moderation. The two cases, one involving Google and one Twitter, stem from disputes over ISIS recruitment materials on big tech platforms. Now, at stake in both cases is the liability protections tech providers have for content uh, that they host and distribute. Now, joining me now to discuss this and other cases that the court will be reviewing this term, Ken Kulkowski, former senior counsel in the Civil Rights Division of the U.S. Department of Justice and former special counsel in the White House Office of Management and Budget. He has also litigated constitutional cases in the Supreme Court. Ken, welcome back to Washington Watch. Tony, it's great to be with you. Thanks for having me. So let's start off, just provide an overview of the two big tech cases in front of the Supreme Court this week and what that could mean uh, for this Section uh, 230 and practical application for users. Well, that's right. Uh, Today, these cases are tied together. There, There are some lawyers who are involved in both cases. Uh, and it looks like if there are real fireworks, I'm actually expecting them tomorrow just because of the, the superstar lineup of lawyers who will be arguing tomorrow. Uh, but today, uh, in the case uh, Gonzalez versus Google, uh, you had a 23-year-old woman uh, who, was, who was murdered. Uh, and her family had sued saying that her murderers were inspired by ISIS videos, that they were radicalized by these ISIS videos uh, that were carried on YouTube and that YouTube is owned and controlled by Google. And uh, but the the argument got a little muddled. Uh, A number of the justices were mentioning that kind of the argument that the lawyer for that side was presenting to the justices uh, was uh, seemed to be different than what they had actually filed their legal briefs on. So it's like some of the justices I think we're signaling that their questions were keyed to an argument that was now not being presented to them, basically with one being, uh, we think that if you have content there and you don't have mechanisms in place to screen it, to block it, to take it down, that content that's left there like that, you can be sued for. Uh, But then the other argument that was presented seem to be, no, we're not saying you need to take it down. We're just saying you can't be promoting it. You can't be endorsing it. Uh, and so there was a real question on what on what yard line the football was on. Uh, and, and the justices, a number of the justices seem to really struggle with where exactly you draw that line. Uh, Justice Elena Kagan uh, made, made a reference at one point that the sort of things that were being asked for here uh, it, she thought sounded like the kind of thing that Congress could address through legislation, but that it was hard, you know, that courts are not to engage in in writing bills. So that the kind of reasoning and rules you might need might be more appropriate for legislation rather than court action, which is just supposed to uh, I- interpret the language that's already in the law. Uh, and so I, I'm not quite sure where where things are going there. There there was there was a lawyer from Google who did a good job defending their position. Then there was a deputy solicitor general from the Justice Department who was given the position of the United States government, uh, who who were acting for uh, asking for something very different. In their case, they just said that in this case, the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Ninth Circuit, they said take this took this content neutral approach of identifying these tools and putting together this toolbox. Right. And DOJ is saying, we think this toolbox is wrong. And so the case should just be thrown out and sent back to the lower court with the Supreme Court just explaining what the analysis should be going forward. So it was kind I, of muddled today, really. Yeah, I listened, to, I listened to part of it. It got a little technical talking about uh, the use of algorithms. And that seemed to be a major portion of the, portion of the discussion today. This deals with them, uh, summarizing it, it essentially deals with them allowing uh, ISIS content on there that may have led to violent actions by those recruited by ISIS, correct? That's right, yes. So what implications would that have? Because Congress has been looking at this same section because it it appears that these social media platforms, they don't want to choke down ISIS. They want them to have access to the platform. But conservatives, they, they seem to be restricting uh, conservative content. 
Well, and there were comments about that uh, today. I mean, it wasn't, you know, explicitly tied on ISIS on one side, conservatives on the other. But there were comments there about bias on on one side, you know, who would actually make these decisions. Uh, and uh, it, it kind of it, it wasn't thoroughly discussed, but I think the inference was there for a lot of people uh, that it's a matter of saying that the, the gatekeepers here are not neutral. Uh, they 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 have their own agenda. Uh, surely they don't want people getting killed. So I mean, right. certainly no one was well, suggesting there were any could, ISIS. Could there be ISIS. could there be any outcome here that would end up being favorable to conservative speech? Well, I'm I'm reserving judgment until we get past the the argument for Twitter uh, yesterday, and there was even some back and forth on that today. Like I believe it was Justice Barrett who made the point to say. Well, wait a second. If I am just retweeting, so now moving off of Google and YouTube and actually using an explicit example from Twitter, from Twitter, where she said, if I just retweet something, uh, you know, is that content on my part? Or do I need to make a comment? Like if it's if if it's a video of of one person killing another person. Uh, do, do, do I need to, to make a comment or an article on it? Do I meet the, need to make the comment to say, this video proves that so-and-so is the killer? Do I need to say those words when I retweet it to, uh, to, to, to be for, for something to be actionable against me? Or is even the act of retweeting it just using the system? Does that open me up to it? So I, I would say, Tony, that many of the questions that were asked Seem to poke, uh, seem to be poking holes at the wording of Section Two Thirty of the Community uh, 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 of the uh, Communications Decency well, and Act, and that's CDA. that's been kind of a veil for social media to hide behind. Yes. But if I mean, yes. you could, I guess, if if it is uh, pierced enough, you could have conservatives taking legal action against them for restricting their speech. Could you not? You could, and there is some litigation underway that cases that have no bearing on today's uh, lawsuit, uh, conservatives taking very, very different actions. One case ongoing right now is making the point to say that if a social media platform is uh, is working in conjunction with the government, taking its marching orders from the government, promoting the message the government says they want promoted, and silencing dissenting voices that the government doesn't like, and is doing so both with the shield of this Section 230 shield that we've discussed, that being a special benefit they enjoy, but also with public statements saying, if you don't clean up your house, you know, we're going to change the law to punish you. So that when the government is both using a carrot and stick, and you're carrying a, a message the government approves of, you're stopping a message it doesn't, there are arguments out there in court to say that that private corporation has now become just an extension of the government, almost like a contractor, and as such should be subject then to, to the, the First, First Amendment, Amendment in terms right. of not being able to discriminate yeah. against viewpoints the government doesn't like. Yeah, we've had uh, Attorney General, Louisiana Attorney General Jeff Landry, who has uh, had some of those suits against the, uh, the federal yes. government. So I want to move to a different topic. The Supreme Court will hear arguments next week in two cases dealing with the president's student loan bailout. Uh, is that uh, move by the president at risk, you think, in these cases? Well, if if we reach the legal merits, I would say that most certainly it should be struck down as an illegal act, uh, that only Congress can decide to spend money, and that when you are paying off a half trillion dollars in student debt, by transferring it to taxpayers, you are effectively, you are both incurring debt for the federal government there, and you are spending money uh, as the federal government. And those are two things that the Constitution says only Congress can decide. Every time we have a fight over the, the debt ceiling, you know, the debt limit increase, uh, th that's a reminder that only Congress can decide when the, the executive branch can borrow money. And of course, we all know that if Congress doesn't fund something, it doesn't happen. So only Congress can spend the money. So the president, President Biden's action there, I think, was blatantly illegal. But the question is whether the, the petitioners, the, well, the plaintiffs, because they were actually uh, winning in some of the lower courts, whether the challengers to this program 
actually have the legal standing to actually bring the ones to, to, to bring this lawsuit. So I'm not sure that it's going to, there, there are real challenges uh, in, in the briefs at the Supreme Court as to whether these states and these private actors, whether they're being injured and can be claiming an injury here that is sufficient for Article Three of the U.S. Constitution to give them the power to have been the plaintiffs in the trial court on this. And if not, then the whole case is thrown out. Uh, but whether they reach the merits in this case or in a future case, I think there are so, uh, or entities that do have standing, but we'll see if the court well, thinks these are two of them. Well, just very quickly, what if these individuals, and we've got states here that are acting, uh, bringing these suits, who would have standing if, if they don't? Well, I think the U.S. Congress has standing. I think that the U.S. House could, by majority resolution, could authorize a member of the House to bring suit in the name of the House. That this was a, a violation of the Constitution's appropriations clause, which says that no money shall be spent unless it's been appropriated uh, by Congress. Congress never okay. appropriated this. So I think Congress could sue. Okay. Specifically uh, the U.S. House. Obviously yeah, the, the Senate. Under Chuck Schumer won't do it, but I believe that I believe that the Republican majority in the U.S. House they could, by majority action in the House, pass a resolution authorizing a member to bring suit on behalf of the House. I believe and they've that. Done, and, and they've done that before. And they've done that before. That, that, that's right. Uh, and yes, they have. Uh, and uh, it, it's called legislative standing doctrine. The big right. Supreme Court case that lays out the contours is called Reigns v. Byrd, 1997. I believe under these circumstances, the U.S. House would have standing to sue, and I believe they'd win. Hmm. Well, I may have a couple conversations there then. Uh, before we uh, run out of time here, any other cases that we should be uh, looking at in this term of the court? Well, I mean, there's a, there's a number of them going on. I mean, of course, you know, 303 Creative, the whole issue about uh, public accommodation laws versus uh, the First Amendment rights of a, of a web designer in terms of if she has a religious objection to uh, developing uh, content to celebrate a same-sex marriage. Uh, that That is certainly there. Uh, next month, and perhaps after argument next month, or I'm sorry, April, April 18, I believe, uh, in uh, a Groff D. DeJoy, that this is a huge one. Tony, uh, Title VII of the Civil Rights Act, which applies to both private employers and government employers, uh, does not permit the uh, the government, to, uh, I'm sorry, an employer uh, to discriminate on the basis of religion, that uh, that they have to, that employers have to reasonably accommodate uh, mm -hmm. uh, uh, the, the religious beliefs of employees. In the 1970s, the Supreme Court, uh, in a decision called Hardison, it redefined, kind of interpreted those words to mean so little that almost any employer could claim that, you know, this would be an undue hardship on them. The Supreme Court is going to take a look in April at restoring some real teeth to Title okay. VII. And that's something Ken, we should talk about when that argument comes. And we will, but not today. We're out of time. So we'll talk about that when that case comes up in April. Ken, always great to see you. Thanks for joining us. Great to see you. Thanks, Tony. God bless. And folks, thank you for joining us as well, but we are slap out of time. So let me leave you with this, the encouraging words the Apostle Paul found in Ephesians 6 when he says you've done everything you can do, when you've prayed, prepared, taken your stand, by all means, keep standing. Washington Watch with Tony Perkins is brought to you by Family Research Council and is entirely listener supported. Portions of the show discussing candidates are brought to you by Family Research Council Action. For more information on anything you've heard today or to find out how you can partner with us in our ongoing efforts to promote faith, family, and freedom, visit TonyPerkins.com. Also, to leave a comment about Washington Watch, call our watch line at 1-866-372-7234. That's 1-866-372-7234.